From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elvian on a week in which Donald Trump said he'd be a dictator, but just for a day. Also, the Taliban bars girls from school and remakes education for boys. Remembering Norman Lear, who transformed sitcoms into something more. And an American music company will use AI to try to recreate the voice and image of Edith Piaf. The Paris singer says, I don't have her voice. Edith Piaf's songs are beautiful when she sings them. But when other people try, it's not the same. Les scandales! First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, December 9, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution that demanded an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The vote followed a ceasefire recommendation by U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who cited severely deteriorating humanitarian conditions. Linda Fasulo reports that 13 of the Security Council's 15 members voted in favor of the resolution, with Britain abstaining. After the veto, Deputy U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Robert Wood told the Security Council the U.S. does not support the draft resolution's call for what he said was an unsustainable ceasefire that would leave Hamas in power and plant the seeds for the next war. He described the measure as imbalanced and criticized the council's refusal to condemn Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. The Palestinian UN envoy, meanwhile, called the defeat of the resolution disastrous and beyond regrettable. Israel's UN ambassador said a ceasefire could come only after Hamas is eliminated. For NPR News, I'm Linda Pizzullo in... New York. Israeli warplanes carried out airstrikes in Gaza overnight, and residents say there have been airstrikes and shelling in both north and south Gaza, including the city of Rafah near the Egyptian border. President Biden is in Los Angeles for a campaign fundraiser tonight. He moved on to L.A. after making a stop in Las Vegas yesterday, where he announced $3 billion in federal funding for a new high-speed railway between Las Vegas and Southern California. Today I'm here to deliver on that vision. You have no idea how much this pleases me. At long last, we're building the first high-speed rail project in our nation's history, and it started here. Biden stopped in Las Vegas, where a gunman on Wednesday killed three professors and wounded a fourth. The gunman was killed by police. The now 17-year-old who pleaded guilty to murdering four classmates in a 2021 shooting at Michigan's Oxford High School has been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Alex McLennan of member station WDET has more. Victim impact statements recounted the events of the shooting and frequently detailed instances of post-traumatic stress while the defense argued Ethan Crumbly, who was 15 at the time of the shooting, should have a chance at rehabilitation, Judge Kwame Rowe gave him a life sentence based on the preparation that took place before the shooting. He wanted to see the impact of his crime, which is why he did not take his own life. Again, this goes back to the defendant's extensive planning. Judge Rowe said the teen has an obsession with violence, Evidence shows Crumbly frequently visited a website featuring graphic violence, including on a jail-provided tablet while awaiting trial. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Harvard President Claudine Gay is apologizing for her remarks during this week's contentious congressional hearing about campus anti-Semitism. WBUR's Max Larkin reports that some students say Gay sought to plot a difficult course with freedom of speech in mind. On Capitol Hill Tuesday, Republican Representative Elise Stefanik of New York suggested that pro-Palestinian chants heard at Harvard threatened genocide against Jews. Gay condemned the chants, but wouldn't promise unequivocally to punish their use. Guillermo Hava is a senior at Harvard. He said pro-Palestinian students like him are in no way calling for violence, and that Gay fell into a political trap. And the university finds itself in a position where it can either opt to play along with the bad faith attack, or it can choose to refute it. And instead, Claudine Gay in front of Congress did neither. Gay's answer sparked shock and disappointment among Jewish students, alumni, and faith leaders. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Boston City Councilors are calling for greater student access to the state-owned Reggie Lewis Track and Athletic Center in Roxbury. The Dorchester reporter says some Boston track teams have to practice in school hallways while their suburban peers use the Reggie Lewis Center. This week, the city council unanimously approved a resolution encouraging conversations between the state and the city to grant Boston student-athletes access to practice time at the center. The Brighton Holiday Bazaar is returning to Roadrunner Boston today. More than 130 so-called unconventional vendors will sell art, vinyl, vintage goods, and more. There will also be a food court and classes available to help you felt your own ornaments. The free indoor event runs from 11 to 6 today. Last night, the Celtics beat the Knicks 133 to 123 at the Garden this afternoon. The Bruins face the Coyotes in college football this afternoon at Gillette. It's the Army-Navy game. It is 39 degrees in Boston and highs today expected to reach the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Palestinian and Arab officials say they are outraged over images of scores of Palestinian men stripped of their underwear under the guard of Israeli soldiers. Meanwhile, the United States is being criticized for vetoing a United Nations Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. For more, we turn out to NPR's Frank Langfitt in Tel Aviv. Frank, thanks for being with us. It's good to be with you, Scott. Please, for those who haven't seen them, describe these images and uh, what the reaction has been. I think one of the most striking ones was this video panning dozens of men. They're sitting on on a street, and their heads are bowed. They're in their underwear, and they're Israeli soldiers milling about on the sidewalk. And Egypt's foreign minister called the images catastrophic and said they degraded the men. And the International Committee of the Red Cross also expressed a lot of concern. How do the Israelis respond? Well, the army here, they're saying they discovered these guys in an area where civilians were supposed to have been evacuated weeks ago. And they're now saying they're checking to see you know, who of them might actually be Hamas fighters. Israeli TV aired the footage, which is thought to have been taken by soldiers, but it's not entirely clear. Now, a Gaza resident did tell a news organization that these men were sheltering with others in a school in northern Gaza, and Israeli forces just rounded them up and then forced them to strip to their underwear. Why would soldiers order them to, to strip down? 
Well, this is a common practice by Israeli military forces, particularly you see this in the West Bank, and they say it's to make sure there are no bomb vests or weapons. But I was talking to a man named Shlomo Brom. He's a retired brigadier general with the Israeli army. And I asked him about these images, and this is what he told me. These pictures should not be publicized because they are humiliating. And why do you think someone might have put them out? They might think that it is good to raise moral in Israel, or maybe it is good as a kind of psychological war against Hamas. And Scott, I have to emphasize, Brom is just speaking for himself, not the military. And we still don't know exactly where these images came from. Is there any way to verify if they are, in fact, Hamas fighters? Not yet. You know, Israel has effectively a ban on journalists going to Gaza, but it's clear already that some of the people in these images are not from Hamas. NBR's confirmed that one person shown is in fact a journalist for a media outlet close to Qatar. And our colleague Leila Fadl, she spoke with the United Nations aid administrator in the United States, and, and he actually recognized some of his own family members in the images. This man's name is Hani Almadun. Hani said he recognized his brother, Mahmoud, in the back of an Israeli army truck. And, and he said there's no way his brother could be working with Hamas. I mean, I know my brother, he's, he can't run two meters, let alone to be a fighter. You know, he's a, just a shopkeeper in Gaza. Hani says he, he found the images revealing, and he also thinks they contain a political message. I'm beginning to understand this war is not just on Hamas. This is just a much bigger war on our own existence, our own identity. And this is the images that communicate that we're defeated people. Frank, of course, the war began with Hamas killing about 1,200 people in southern Israel in a surprise attack on October 7th. Uh, since then... Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 17,000 people in Gaza, according to the health ministry there. We know the U.S. has been trying to put more pressure on Israelis to re reduce civilian casualties. What's the Israeli response been like? Well, I think they are listening and they say they're doing what they can. Um, and they have to listen to the Americans because the Americans are providing the weapons. But it's Israeli analysts this week told me that they think the U.S. is going to give more time to Israel to cripple Hamas, even if it costs more civilian lives and, and generates more anger and criticism of the U.S. and Israel here and overseas. And Paris Frank Langford in Tel Aviv, thanks so much for being with us. Good to talk, Scott. We now turn to domestic politics. Former President Donald Trump said he would only be a dictator if reelected on the first day. Hunter Biden, the president's son, charged with failing to pay his taxes, a lot of taxes. And a Republican senator drops his long hold on some military promotions. Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Let's begin with what sounded like a pretty ominous moment when uh, Sean Hannity of Fox News interviewed Donald Trump. I love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Ron, is it, is it hard not to take Donald Trump at his word? Uh, that he wants to make a series of authoritarian decisions if he returns to, to office, like, say, closing the border, which is one of the examples he went on to give? You know, the former president has been very open about his frustration with constraints when he was president, uh, frustrations with people who pushed back, like his chiefs of staff or certain cabinet members, and, of course, the Congress and the courts. So maybe a day of being dictator sounds pretty good, but who's to say it would stop after a day? If he wasn't happy with that day's work, why would he give up so soon? And if he was happy with it, why stop? Who in history was a dictator for a day and no more? No. So, you know, Trump was just having a bit of fun with Sean Hannity, perhaps. 
or perhaps he was serious, or perhaps this was just more bluster to divert attention from his various courtroom dramas, including the live testimony he's expected to give on Monday in the civil suit against him in New York. Uh, Meanwhile, Hunter Biden charged in California with nine federal counts of evading millions of dollars in taxes. The indictment said he spent some of that money on illicit drugs, escorts, and various luxuries. He'll also be tried on gun charges in Delaware. Now, Hunter Biden is his own person, but will his indictment figure into the House Republican inquiry into the impeachment of President Biden? Hunter Biden's lawyer says those taxes were all paid two years ago, but we are talking about millions in taxes, and he's also facing that gun charge you mentioned. So any effort to negotiate a plea deal at this point could entail some jail time. And of course, the longer his name, Hunter Biden's name, is in the news, the more lift it gives to those Republican efforts to impeach President Biden for his ties with his son. Now, there's no evidence yet that the president profited from those ties, but it's the kind of accusation that keeps the pot boiling, keeps impeachment headlines coming, and keeps generating outrage on both sides of the political divide. Senator Tommy Tuberville, uh, Alabama Republican, dropped his hold on most military promotions, uh, which he was holding up over the Pentagon's abortion policy, what made him finally relent. The pressure was coming not just from the Biden people and the Senate Democrats, but from the Pentagon itself uh, and, and the bases where these officers serve and the people that they serve with, and ultimately from enough of Tuberville's Republican colleagues in the Senate that he could no longer withstand the weight of their disapproval. Ron, a woman in Texas wants to end her pregnancy because a genetic condition gives the fetus that she is carrying a low chance of survival and, and puts herself, the mother, at risk. Now, there are three overlapping abortion bans in Texas, but a judge granted Kate Cox permission for the procedure. Then the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, got involved and and got the results he wanted, didn't he? Yes, he he has gotten some results. Late last night, the Texas Supreme Court put a pause on the ruling allowing her to have an abortion. And this, of course, uh, puts it in limbo while the Texas Supreme Court considers the merits, which it has not ruled on. Now, Ken Paxton said he'd prosecute any doctor who was involved in providing an emergency abortion. Despite the judge's order, he said he would also go after the hospitals involved. Uh, He's no stranger to controversy, as you know, Scott, during the 2020 election uh, aftermath. He ginned up a lawsuit against several states that had certified Joe Biden the winner in the 2020 presidential race. The Supreme Court threw that out and essentially refused to hear it. But nonetheless, Ken Paxton made a name for himself with Donald Trump at that time. NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving, thanks so much for being with us, Ron. Thank you, Scott. Norman Lear, who died this week at the age of 101, produced TV sitcoms, which are often considered the basic bologna and white bread sandwiches of television. Set up, punchline, chuckles and roars, then repeat. But in the early 1970s, Norman Lear and his producing partner, Bud Yorkin, changed the recipe. They found laughs in subjects that were often no laughing matter. Racism, sexism, homophobia, the war in Vietnam. People tuned in. All in the family came first, different generations and attitudes all living and fussing under the same roof in Queens, New York. Archie Bunker sat in his recliner spouting dumb, bigoted malaprops. Then came Norman Lear's spinoffs from that show. The Jeffersons, 
Archie Bunker's black next-door neighbors in Queens who strike it rich in the dry-cleaning business and move to the Upper East Side of Manhattan, I'll quote the theme song here, to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Then good times in which Florida Evans, a character who first appeared as Maud's housekeeper, and her family live in public housing in Chicago. There's a fair debate even today about whether Norman Lear's historic sitcoms got 120 million Americans to laugh at the stupidity of bigotry or just laugh it off. The most stunning moment of Norman Lear's sitcom mastery might have been the broadcast of Saturday night, February 19, 1972. Sammy Davis Jr., the great black entertainer playing himself, rode in Archie Bunker's cab but left his briefcase. Archie took it home. Sammy Davis Jr. is grateful and comes to Queens to pick it up, but first must sit through some of Archie's absurd orations. Archie insists that he's not prejudiced. Sammy Davis Jr. purports to agree, telling Archie in front of his family, If you were prejudiced, you'd walk around thinking you're better than anyone else in the world, but I can honestly say, having spent these marvelous moments with you, you ain't better than anybody. And then, while posing for a photo, Sammy Davis Jr. kisses Archie Bunker on the cheek. Smack! An interracial same-sex kiss on primetime TV in 1972. This week we remember Norman Lear by hearing what followed, an audience shocked, thrilled, and maybe a little uncomfortable to see TV history being made right in front of them, and what may be the longest studio sitcom laugh ever. One, two, three. <laughs> and you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8.18. Coming up in about 10 minutes, you'll get the story on a new biopic about the famous singer Edith Piaf and how the film will use artificial intelligence. And here's a great way to make sure you're getting more depth, context, and perspective than you can get from news alerts alone. Get the free WBUR mobile app, and we'll be there wherever you are. You can listen live or rewind the figurative tape and listen later. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. And the home for little wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids. Because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. The U.S. is being criticized for blocking a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The White House has said it shares international concerns, but the U.S. deputy ambassador to the U.N. told the council that the resolution would only plant the seeds for the next war. The U.N.'s chief says Gaza is at a breaking point. The Texas Supreme Court has temporarily blocked a woman with pregnancy complications from obtaining an emergency abortion. The court has issued a one-page order putting a hold on a lower court's ruling that prevented Texas from enforcing the state's ban in the woman's case. And actor Ryan O'Neill is dead. He was 82. O'Neill starred in several hit films in the 1970s and was nominated for an Oscar for his role in Love Story. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Taliban's Deputy Foreign Minister, Sher Mohammad Abbas Stanikzai, said this week that girls and women should have access to education in Afghanistan. This is a rare public criticism of a policy the Taliban put in place when they took over in 2021. But for now, girls and women cannot be educated beyond the sixth grade. And a new report out this week by Human Rights Watch shows that the education of boys is also suffering under the Taliban. Heather Barr is Associate Director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. She helped produce that report and joins us now from Cape Town, South Africa. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. I gather Human Rights Watch uh, interviewed high school boys, grades 8 through 12, as well as their parents in several provinces around the country. What did they find? It was all bad news, I'm afraid. What we heard from these boys and their parents across a a bunch of different provinces um, in different parts of the country was when the Taliban took over, they fired all of the women who worked in boys' schools. And some of the boys we talked to didn't have any male teachers. And so that meant that all of their teachers vanished overnight. So suddenly you had boys who might be in high school and were being taught by new male teachers, or in some cases, they didn't actually get replacement teachers at all. And so they sat in a classroom trying to learn themselves from their book without any teacher at all. Second issue was big changes to the curriculum, subjects like art, culture, sports, all being replaced with more religious studies. And then the third issue that we really heard about a lot from these boys was a really alarming increase in the use of corporal punishment. One of the things that we heard again and again was boys describing being sort of pulled up in front of an assembly in the morning with the entire school gathered and being beaten um, often on the soles of their feet for perceived infractions like wearing clothing that was perceived as being somehow Western. Boys said that a lot of boys had stopped coming to school. They didn't feel like there was any point anymore and that a lot of them were, were having huge mental health struggles. Have the schools become what amount to mass indoctrination academies? I think that that's certainly the direction that things seem to be going in. I think there's a lot of reason to worry about that. Can you help us understand, isolate for us, any individual things that that some of the boys said that touched you in particular? Some of it that was really difficult to hear was, was about boys that had been looking forward to taking their college entrance exams going on and had ideas for their careers and who now felt like there wasn't really any point in going on. What do you hear from parents? How are they responding? What are they concerned about the long-range effects on their sons and daughters? I mean, they're distressed as well. You know, of course, they want their sons to study. Um, Their daughters can't, and they, they hope that at least their sons could. I think some of what's happening to boys also is that they're feeling under a huge amount of pressure because their sisters can't study. And so now suddenly 
they're solely responsible for, you know, the future financial well-being of their families. And this is happening also in the context of a very serious humanitarian and economic crisis. We also heard about boys dropping out because they, they need to try to go to Iran or to Pakistan to try to find work. And they may or may not make it there. And once they make it there, um, they'll face all kinds of, of discrimination and risk. And then we also know that there are mass deportations. Should we be at all surprised by this? I mean, hasn't the Taliban has done this before? And haven't they essentially said this is the society we want to create? I don't think we should be surprised that, that the Taliban are behaving in this way. I think we should be surprised that the international community, including the United States, seems so comfortable with the role that they played in creating this situation. You make a series of recommendations. What, what are they? Well, I mean, the Taliban obviously should hire back all the female teachers, <laughs> stop all of their violations of the rights of women and girls and boys and men, allow girls to go to school, stop changing the curriculum, stop engaging in corporal punishment. You know, how realistic is it to think that the Taliban would follow any of these recommendations? Not very. Then the United Nations should be doing everything they can to, to try to stop these harmful things that are happening in the education system um, and to be putting pressure on the Taliban and to be um, you know, they also need to think about whether there there have to be other ways for, for children, girls and boys, to get education during this time when things are so impossible in the regular school system. Heather Barr, Associate Director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. Thanks so much. Thank you. World leaders are heading into the final stretch of this year's United Nations Climate Talks, and one person is especially prominent, a Bangladeshi professor who radically changed the global talk about climate change. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk brings us the story of Professor Salim al-Haq. Salim al-Haq has been name-checked by a lot of powerful people at this year's climate meeting in Dubai, including the man running the meeting, Sultan al-Jabbar. And allow me here to pause for a moment to honor the memory of our distinguished colleague and my dear friend, Salim al-Haq. Huck died in October of a heart attack. He was only 71 years old. He had been planning to attend this year's climate talks, as he did every year. Oh my God. Um, first of all, I miss him badly. Harjit Singh is an activist with the Climate Action Network and a longtime friend of Huck's. He says Huck transformed these annual meetings by lifting up the voices of people on the front lines of climate change. When Huck started out, few people were thinking about what was owed to such people, including people in his home country of Bangladesh. He was a lone warrior 30 years ago on adaptation. Not many people even knew what adaptation is. Huck said about educating people. Adapting to climate change is expensive, he argued. You need to build seawalls and hurricane shelters, help people who lose crops to extreme drought or homes to floods. And Huck was unequivocal about who should foot that bill. It should be wealthy countries like the U.S. Because the U.S. and Europe are responsible for the vast majority of overall planet warming pollution from burning fossil fuels. Here he is talking to NPR all the way back in 2007. This is the polluter paying the victim of pollution, not the rich paying the poor out of a sense of charity. Huck was arguing for something akin to climate reparations. Here he is on NPR in 2021. It's a moral case. You 
caused the problem. We are suffering because of you causing the problem. But rich countries, including the U.S., did not agree. It was an uphill battle, helping poorer countries go up against the richest, most powerful economies in the world year after year at these climate meetings. Navida Khan is an anthropologist at Johns Hopkins University who shadowed Huck as part of her research. Speaking at this year's meeting in Dubai, she told my colleague Nathan Rott that Huck had a special ability to make people listen. Because you hear other people say the same things, and it's like, yes, it's bad, sounds bad. But he would speak, and it was quite riveting, you know. It is adapt or die. That's from a speech Huck gave at the COP meeting in 2021. He was arguing for the creation of a loss and damage fund to benefit vulnerable countries. This is not only the morally right thing to do, but also the economically smart thing to do. That year, it seemed like a loss and damage fund might actually be created. But when the talks ended, there was no fund, just a promise to talk about it more. Huck was clearly frustrated in this interview with Britain's Channel 4 News. I just heard John Kerry trying to spin this as a good thing. It isn't. Why not? Well, I mean, there I is sp- some agreement, isn't there? there well, I'm, I'm talking about the most vulnerable people on the planet. They came here expecting to hear something being done about loss and damage. And all we got is a dialogue to talk more about it. It was a low point, but Huck didn't give up. Harjit Singh says this is one of the things he admired the most about his friend. Look at the way he kept fighting. And I know there were moments when he was really frustrated. But, you know, he didn't quit. At last year's meeting, countries finally agreed to create a loss and damage fund. Huck celebrated. But it was just the first step. There was no actual money in the fund yet. The first contributions were announced at this year's meeting without Salim al-Haq. Singh says it hurts to not have him there, but he and others are pressing on, pushing wealthy countries to contribute what they owe. Anything that you want to achieve in your life, you just don't get it in a year or two. You have to continue fighting for years and decades. So look to Salim and learn from him. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. First, Anthony Bourdain, then the Beatles. Now, Edith Piaf, <laughs> mon Dieu. Warner Music says it will use artificial intelligence to recreate Edith Piaf's iconic voice and image in an upcoming biopic. We sent reporter Rebecca Rossman on a journey around Edith Piaf's working-class Paris neighborhood to try to find out what AI might struggle to capture. Bernard Marchois was 17 years old, kind of shy, but he wasn't going to let a little bit of introversion to stop him from meeting his favorite singer. I met her one day at the Olympia, he says. It was 1958, and he had bought a ticket to see Edith Piaf at one of Paris's most famous venues. She was a global cabaret superstar who had performed at Carnegie Hall and on The Ed Sullivan Show. So when he built up the courage to pass by Piaf's dressing room after the show, she couldn't help but notice how young he was. And so she told me, he says, next time you want to come see me perform, come by the artist's entrance and I'll let you in. And that's exactly what I did, he says. And then a friendship developed, which lasted for five years. 
After her death at only 47 years old, Marchois and Piaf's widower opened a museum in Piaf's modest apartment where her music is always playing in the background. I never get tired of her voice, he says. I listen to Piaf all day and it doesn't bother me at all. And what if her voice was recreated using AI? I'm a little opposed, he says. Even if it's very, very well done, I'll always have the feeling that it's a machine working behind the scenes. Warner Music Group is partnering with Piaf's estate to produce a film about her life. Its director, Julie Vey, declined to be interviewed, but a press release says she will use AI to recreate Piaf's face and voice to narrate the film. It will surely be judged in the working-class neighborhood of Belleville, where Piaf was born and raised. Safeguarding their local legend is a sacred and selective art. Here at Au Vieux Belleville, a lively cabaret restaurant and bar, singer Minel Guy waltzes from table to table with her accordion as diners sing along. Guy, who's 76, recently celebrated her 31st year performing here. But she admits singing Edith Piaf songs makes her a bit uneasy. I don't have her voice, she says. Edith Piaf songs are beautiful when she sings them. But when other people try, it's not the same. When Piaf started singing at only 14 years old, it was often about love, life, and loss on the streets in this scruffy bohemian and multi-ethnic neighborhood. Even after she left, it informed her art, and she chose to be buried here. Walking near her gravestone in the 97th division of the Père Lachaise Cemetery is 87-year-old Jacques Leblanc. He tells me he had the opportunity to hear Piaf in person twice. She was certainly one of France's most famous and important singers, he says. Okay, here she is. There's a little plaque on top of her gravestone that says, Edith. It says, tes chansons sont toujours d'actualité, which translates to, your songs are still relevant. Standing with Leblanc near Piaf's grave, I asked him what he thinks about using AI to recreate her voice. Moi, je ne pense pas. No, I don't think so, he says matter-of-factly. He heads over to her grave, pauses briefly, and walks away. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Paris. Oh, what a voice. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Just the first few notes of that song makes you want to join in, don't they? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Now, King Cole's version of the Christmas song. Robert Brandt of Syracuse, New York, and his team may really have Jack Frost nipping at their noses. I am the assistant superintendent for the Department of Snow and Ice. He was one of the people we spoke to this week about working during the holidays, which, by the way, happens in the news business, too. For snowplow crews, it comes with the territory. We live in, like, the snow belt. It could sit over us for hours, days, and it could come out of nowhere. Plow drivers are often exhausted while their children open gifts. 
they can make it home in time at all. Mr. Brant and his colleagues are proud to help make his city's streets safer, and he is often touched by his community's gratitude. I remember one year plowing snow, and we were called into the cafeteria, and someone donated 15 turkeys. There was mashed potatoes. There was like a whole, you know, family spread. Over at the Rosamond Gifford Zoo, Alinda Digert is another Syracuse resident who's on duty. All the rest of us sing carols or spin dreidels. She helps stand watch over the zoo's elephants who still need to be fed, watered, and cared for. You know, the animals don't know it's a holiday, so we kind of try to give them a little bit extra food or something like that. And we always like to do something that's themed for that holiday that's around us for them to kind of get to experience it as well. But even like the snow, some of them like to play in the snow or like eat the snow and stuff like that. So I think they've been feeling festive. <laughs> does sound like it would be extraordinary to see a baby pachyderm play in the snow. If you like your cocoa, Let's say leaded. Brett Johnson of Washington, D.C. will be on the clock this Christmas. She'll be tending bar at Larry's Lounge and says the holiday can wait. We'll have, like, you know, a random Christmas dinner, just not on Christmas Day. My husband is also working Christmas as a police officer, so. She won't be hungry, though. Larry's provides a full spread for every patron and employee free of charge. Johnson says that's because it's a gay bar. Members of the LGBTQ community don't always have a supportive family with whom they can spend the holidays. And she says she tries to keep that in mind. Of course, I would love to not work, but it's also one thing about working is that you get to hear people's personal stories as well, especially in this like tight-knit community. Not often a white Christmas for Rob Dillian of the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office in California. What about a silent night? You can get a holiday that ranges from a beautiful afternoon all the way out to some pretty crazy, hairy, who knows what. He's the deputy public information officer and always on call on Christmas. He says the department tries to celebrate with meals or snacks at the station and recalled a Thanksgiving when he was a patrol officer and responded to a call. They were very appreciative. They offered us dinner. Um, they appreciated the fact that we were working and weren't home with our own families. The duty called, and Officer Dillian had to refuse. Maybe he would have stayed if Mom Stamberg's cranberry relish had been on the table. Is it better to be homed with loved ones? I guess. But everybody we spoke to said they were also happy to serve their communities. And that's what really makes the season bright. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. 74 members of Congress are calling on Harvard President Claudine Gay and MIT President Sally Kornbluth to resign. The letter was written by New York Republican Congresswoman and Harvard alum Elise Stefanik and largely signed by Republicans. On Capitol Hill this week, the lawmakers grilled the university presidents over what the lawmakers say is an anti-Semitic and unsafe environment on their campuses. An MBTA project that had been expected to wrap up this weekend will not. The T says it will take longer to fix the tracks on the new Green Line extension than previously thought. The tracks are too narrow to allow trains to move safely at regular speeds. The repair project was supposed to be finished Monday, but now the T says it will take at least another week. Buses will continue replacing Green Line trains in the Medford and Somerville area. 
In the forecast, some clouds today and highs in the 50s. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Volante Farms with their annual fundraiser for the home for little wanderers. Volante Farms is matching donations made in person or online at volantefarms.com. And Emerson Colonial Theater with most wonderful time of the year. Christmas classics from the Broadway Sinfonietta. December 22nd and 23rd, emersoncolonialtheater.com. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. There's a huge question at the heart of Edward Geist's new book. Well, the matchless velocity of artificial intelligence to discover, evaluate, calculate, and confirm information make the kind of nuclear catastrophes portrayed in popular films, including War Games, Dr. Strangelove, and The Terminator, more or less likely. His new book is Deterrence Under Uncertainty, Artificial Intelligence and Nuclear Warfare. And Edward Geist, a policy researcher at the Rand Corporation, joins us. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'll begin with the easy stuff. You think some of these popular films have actually made good points over the years. I certainly think that there are aspects of these films that do reflect reality. However, the likely future of the intersection of artificial intelligence and nuclear strategy, I believe, will probably be stranger than fiction. <laughs> the only thing I can think to say is how so. So in the films War Games and Terminator, the reason that these narratives of nuclear-armed computers run amok are so ubiquitous is because it makes for a great story. But it turns out that the would-be buyers of a Whopper, like in War Games, or Skynet in Terminator, the military is actually not so eager to replace human decision-makers with machines. That doesn't mean, however, that they are not interested. In fact, they're very interested in applications of artificial intelligence. You say that AI makes reason more possible in circumstances of uncertainty. That, that's a good thing, isn't it? Artificial intelligence researchers for the last 60 plus years have been searching for a way to make computers reason under uncertainty more effectively mm -hmm. because reasoning under certainty is one of the core tasks of intelligence. So unfortunately, one of the things that they've discovered is that reasoning under uncertainty is difficult in the sense of being computationally intractable. So what that means is that you can't solve your knowledge quality problems. Like you can't make up for knowledge you don't have just by buying a bigger computer. 
Will artificial intelligence let machines essentially plot to overthrow humanity? They have more brain power. They could be developed to have more strength. I feel my blood chilling as I as I as I phrase the question, and it might be impossible to pull the plug. One of the interesting implications of nuclear strategic theory, such as that articulated by Thomas Schelling back in the 1960s, is that it turns out that the more rational actor is not necessarily going to prevail in strategic bargaining. That in a sense that nuclear strategy is about the practical application of coercive bargaining strategies. And Thomas Schelling has all these wonderful examples of how you can be sort of like adaptively non-rational. You make your threat of making this irrational retaliation credible by actively compromising your rationality, by like taking out your hearing aid and throwing it away and making sure the other side knows you've thrown it away. And so that therefore you can't hear what they say and therefore that they will be incentivized to capitulate in part because they think that you are less rational than they are. What worries me is less that like, oh, well, the machines are like more intelligent than humans is that could they engage in course of bargaining more effectively than humans do? So that therefore the risk may not be coming because they are quote unquote more intelligent, but the, rather that they are equipped to be more ruthless. Because they lack morality? Well, unfortunately, human history suggests that humans yeah, that we do too, all too yeah. often lack moral <laughs> scruples. We've already seen, and you've mentioned uh, how AI can make fakery appear to be more convincing, and those powers are only getting greater. Mm -hmm. That's alarming, isn't it? Oh, yes. In fact, I believe that this is the key development that we should be concerned about, is that the possibilities of AI for deception, including military deception, are becoming more apparent because of the generative AI revolution that is now ongoing. I'm wondering, not about the United States, Russia, and China. I'm wondering about somebody, some entity mm -hmm. with accomplished AI skills sitting somewhere else in the world yeah. that convinces the United States and Russia they are under attack by each other. Yeah. They start exchanging missiles that go back and forth and essentially destroy each other. Yeah. But fortunately, at least for the time being, doing that sort of thing remains pretty difficult. And one of the reasons for that is because of the way that we go about trying to confirm that a nuclear attack is underway. Here's the sentence in your book, I think, that most alarmed me. Yes. And it's a half sentence, really. Mm -hmm. Quote, some nuclear wars are potentially winnable. Now, I think a lot of people in your field and certainly in, in the world generally think the fact that nuclear war is unwinnable. Uh, to, to quote John F. Kennedy, even the fruits of victory would be ashes in our mouths. That mutually assured destruction has kept the world from nuclear war for the past few decades. Right. As I continue, though, it's like some nuclear wars are potentially winnable, but that is only the case when you have an adversary that is willing to let you win. The obvious uh, sort of example of this is where, you know, an adversary starts a nuclear war and let's say that there is a real nuclear attack and the president decides that it's not a real nuclear attack. This is a false alarm. It just fails to retaliate until it's too late. But if there's actually no retaliation at all, well, the other side is likely to inherit enough of a world that they could dominate it. You make a case for what you call tempered optimism. Yes. When it comes to AI. How so? Being unjustifiably pessimistic 
about potential outcomes is not doing ourselves as human beings, as Americans, any favors. Looking forward, we need to have, I think, a sensible concern for potential risks, but also just not to descend into utter fatalism. It's like we do need to think about potential threats. We need to hedge sensibly against them. We also need to be thinking about like, how do we make policy that's robust against the threats that we aren't currently taking seriously? Edward Geist of the Rand Corporation, his new book, Deterrence Under Uncertainty. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. And I hope you have a happy holidays, because if you can manage to have a happy holidays, I suppose the rest of us can, too. An often overlooked female artist is starting to get her due nearly 30 years after her death. Surrealist painter Leonor Fini's captivating and often gender-bending images are attracting renewed appreciation. NPR's Greg Allen reports that Feeney is one of the featured artists at the annual Art Basel Fair underway this week in Miami. Leonor Fini outlived most of her contemporaries, artists like Max Ernst, Salvador Dali, and Rene Magritte, dying in 1996 at 89 years old. Although she was part of the movement, gallery owner Roland Weinstein says she wasn't just a surrealist painter. She was a pure creator. She continually changed. In that essence, I think she's like Picasso. She changes and grows and changes and grows. She loved theater, design, costume design, and she was kind of a genius in all of them. One mark that this is Feeney's moment is that you can find her paintings at the fair in Miami this week, where many in the art world are gathered. Weinstein's San Francisco Gallery has joined with a Parisian art dealer to mount a show of some of her most important work. Born in Argentina, Feeney moved to Italy with her mother as a child and learned to draw by sketching cadavers at the local morgue. Although she had no formal training, Feeney became an accomplished artist, first in Italy and then Paris, where she became intimate artistically and sometimes romantically with surrealist artists, including Ernst and Dali. She was part of the first major surrealist exhibitions, but Weinstein says the founder of the movement, French writer André Breton, didn't accept her as one of them. If he said you were a surrealist, he, you were. If he didn't say you were a surrealist, you could paint surrealistically, but you weren't a surrealist. And he would not have a woman be a surrealist. In his view, women were muses. Feeney was a flamboyant, eccentric, and glamorous part of the Paris art scene, appearing at events in costume or dressed like a man. As an artist, she was productive over a remarkable six decades. In the 1950s and 1960s, she became immersed in stage and costume design for theater and opera companies, even contributing costumes for Federico Fellini's film, Eight and a Half. I work all my life for Leonor. Paris gallery owner Arlette Suhami first met Leonor Fini in 1978. She found her overwhelming, opinionated, and fascinating. Suhami's friend and interpreter, Victor Picou, picks up the story. When she met Arlette, Leonor said, I don't like women in general, and Arlette said, neither do I. And she said, okay, we're going to get along, right? <laughs> Suhami became Fini's art dealer and worked with her for the rest of the painter's life. It was an intense relationship. Feeney called her five times a day. For a show in the 1980s, Suhami recalls combing Paris bakeries to find 20 white cakes that surrounded the artist, dressed also in white, in a video and photo shoot. Weinstein says because of her beauty and charisma, Feeney fascinated the other artists and photographers in her circle. There was a time when the most expensive photograph ever sold at auction was a piece by Henri Cartier-Brisson, which was a woman floating 
naked in the water from the neck down. And it's stunningly beautiful. And nobody knew this at the time, but it's Leonor Feeney. In some ways, Suhami says Feeney's personal life was as fantastic as her surrealist art. For much of her life, she lived in a relationship with two men who shared her Paris home. She was free, she was the most extraordinary artist women I had met, but she was also neither man or woman, she was an androgynous. Suami says Feeney's progressive, radical at the time, approach to gender identity stemmed from her childhood. Feeney said her mother disguised her as a boy in her early years in an effort to evade attempts by her father kidnap her in a custody dispute. And you can see that in her painting because you can see men that look like women and women that look like men in her painting, so it's very fluid. One of the paintings in the Feeney exhibition in Miami shows the artist fully dressed, leading her semi-naked male lover. Weinstein says it's a role reversal from paintings that typically show a naked woman reclining before a fully clad man. Weinstein says that was revolutionary. She presents herself very strong, very powerful. Clearly the dominant person in the painting is Leonor Feeney. Interest in Feeney has risen in recent years among collectors and museums. One of her paintings sold last year for $2.3 million. Art historian Terry Ark says, as with other women artists like Frida Kahlo and Leonora Carrington, some of the fascination with Feeney's personal life runs the risk of obscuring her achievements as an artist. Sometimes uh, Leonore Spini has been sort of put in a box of the eroticism in her paintings and how free she was in, in terms of uh, sexuality, but she was much more than that. There are two major Fini exhibitions now in the works. ARC is curating one next year that will open in Milan and travel to other cities. The other, in 2026, opens in Frankfurt, Germany. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. We have an update now on the science of swooning. I often swoon when I hear our theme music by B.J. Lederman. And Pierre's John Hamilton reports on evidence that fainting can be caused by a newly discovered pathway between the heart and brain. About 40% of people pass out at some point in their lives. Benit Augustin of the University of California, San Diego, says often there's no medical reason. A lot of people faint at the sight of blood. Or like when you're exposed to like a very intense emotional stimulus, you would faint. Doctors call this sort of fainting vasovagal syncope. It occurs when there's a sudden drop in heart rate and blood pressure. That reduces circulation to the brain, which shuts down the circuits that keep us conscious. Augustine says research dating back to the 19th century links this type of fainting to the vagus nerve, which connects the brain to internal organs, including the heart, lung, and gut. But what was not clear was which part of the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is big. It's a major highway between the body and the brain. Scientists once thought the vagus nerve was merely a way for the brain to control internal organs. But studies show it's a two-way street. The gut, for example, can also affect the brain. Augustine's team figured that might be true of the heart as well. What we were trying to argue, well, the heart also sends signals back to the brain, which can influence its function and behavior. The team used genetic tools to study the vagus nerve in mice. And they found a group of nerve cells that connect the heart's ventricles, which pump blood, with a small region of the brainstem, which regulates breathing and heart rate. To see whether this pathway could cause fainting, they used a pulse of laser light to stimulate those nerve cells in mice. When the pulse hits them, 
the heart rate immediately dips. They, they wobble around a little bit, and then around seven seconds, they fall over. And like people who faint, their pupils dilate, their eyes roll back, their breathing slows, and their blood pressure plummets. The finding, which appears in the journal Nature, seems to confirm that fainting can be triggered by this pathway between the heart and brain. Dr. Rob Wilson, a neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic, says the study also provides a clearer picture of how the brain and body usually work together to keep us from passing out. There's this whole orchestra that responds to how the blood's flown to the body. So it tells the heart how to speed up, how much to pump, how much to move as a response. Wilson says scientists are just beginning to understand how that works. For example, it's only been a few years since a team explained the reflex that keeps blood pressure constant whether we're sitting or standing. That research helped win a Nobel Prize in 2021. Wilson says the discovery of a fainting reflex could eventually help patients with disorders that affect blood flow to the brain. This is probably a new door to go through for treatments and understanding. Wilson says autonomic disorders, which affect the brain's regulation of internal organs, didn't used to get much attention. Then COVID occurred, and a lot of the long COVID patients have autonomic dysfunction, dizziness, fainting, and it's a big deal. Suddenly, there are a lot more people passing out, apparently because COVID affects some of the signals that pass through the vagus nerve. Wilson says he has limited options for patients who faint frequently for no obvious reason. Sometimes people just need to avoid triggers, and sometimes people might need an actual medication to sort of prevent this from happening at times. But those medications may simply raise a person's blood pressure. The new study could help find a treatment that addresses the underlying problem. John Hamilton, NPR News. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Thanks for joining us this Saturday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. That is Tuesday, December 19th. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. 39 degrees in Boston. Clouds today. Highs in the low 50s. Tomorrow, windy. Highs in the low 60s. Then rain mainly late in the day and at night. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday, harvardartmuseums.org. And we need a vacation, with over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at weneedavacation.com and Chevalier Theatre in Medford Square with vocalist, pianist, and songwriter Matteo Bocelli on his Matteo Tour, December 12th. ChevalierTheatre.com. I'm executive editor for news Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 
92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, will the U.S. Congress approve more aid for Ukraine? Many House Republicans make it conditional on changes to U.S. border policies. Phillips O'Brien, a professor of strategic studies, contends. If Congress doesn't approve this aid now, that's the greatest victory Putin has had in this war to date. And later, the Israeli-occupied West Bank at a boiling point. Also, new gene treatments for sickle cell disease. Where will Shohei Otani decide to go? L.A., Tirana, Dayton? And a great copy editor on his career, helping great writers to write good. First, we have our newscast at Saturday, December 9, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Israeli warplanes have been flying over Gaza, and residents say there have been airstrikes and shelling in both North and South Gaza a day after the U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution demanding a humanitarian ceasefire. Arab officials and a human rights organization are criticizing Israel for forcing dozens of Palestinian men to sit on a street in Gaza City stripped of their underwear while under Israeli guard. NPR's Frank Langford has more from Tel Aviv. Israeli TV aired images of what it said were captured captured Hamas fighters. The men sit on the street with their heads bowed as Israeli soldiers with rifles stand on the sidewalk. Egypt's foreign minister, Sameh Shukri, called the pictures catastrophic and said they degraded and humiliated the men. The International Committee of the Red Cross expressed concerns, adding that detainees must be treated with humanity and dignity as required by international law. Israel said the men were discovered in areas where civilians were supposed to have evacuated weeks ago. But an American aid worker told NPR that he recognized some of the detainees in images as his family members, who he says are not associated with Hamas and have been released. Frank Langford, NPR News, Tel Aviv. OPEC is coming under criticism at climate negotiations in Dubai. The BBC's Paul Moss reports a letter was leaked from the head of the oil-producing organization, calling on members to resist any reference to phasing out fossil fuels in the final communique. Haytham Alhesi, Secretary General of OPEC, complained in a letter that there was undue and disproportionate pressure on fossil fuels at the COP summit. He called on fellow oil producers to proactively reject any talk of phasing fossil fuels out, warning this could harm livelihoods. But a delegate from the Marshall Islands in the Pacific insisted it was the burning of these fuels which risked world prosperity. The Texas Supreme Court is temporarily blocking a woman from obtaining an emergency abortion after the state attorney general asked for an intervention. NPR's Amy Heldub reports that this reverses a lower court's decision. The Texas Supreme Court issued the stay saying it needs more time to review the case. The latest turn in a dizzying legal battle pitting Kate Cox, a Dallas-area mother of two, against the state's near-total abortion ban. Her fetus was diagnosed with a fatal abnormality, putting Cox's own health and fertility at risk. 
She petitioned the court for an abortion, and on Thursday, a state judge ruled in her favor. Even so, Cox told NBC Nightly News it's a hard time. We're going through the loss of a, of a child. There's no outcome here that I take home my healthy baby girl. Now the Center for Reproductive Rights, which represents Cox, says it's hopeful the state Supreme Court will permit the abortion, but adds justice delayed may be justice denied. Amy Held, NPR News. And from Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A rabbi is resigning from an anti-Semitism task force at Harvard. Rabbi David Wolpe is a visiting scholar at Harvard Divinity School. He said on social media that Harvard President Claudine Gay's testimony on Capitol Hill this week was, quote, painfully inadequate. Wolpe says that testimony signaled to him that he cannot make the impact he had hoped for on the task force. Gay and two other college presidents were questioned by a Republican-led House panel over accusations that their campuses are anti-Semitic environments. It will take longer than previously thought to fix the tracks on the MBTA's new Green Line extension. The T says the tracks are too narrow to allow trains to move safely at regular speeds, and the repair project was supposed to be finished on Monday, but it is now going to take at least another week. Buses will continue replacing trains on both the Union Square and Medford Tufts branches. The nonprofit Autism Eats is holding two inclusive family brunches with Santa this weekend. They'll be held at Maggiano's Little Italy in Boston this morning and the Clara Pub in Lawrence tomorrow morning, both in private rooms. The organizers build the event as autism-friendly and non-judgmental. Families can reserve a spot at autismeats.org. The Army-Navy football game is taking over Gillette Stadium. This is the 124th matchup between the college teams and the first time they'll be playing in Foxborough or even in New England. Kickoff is at 3 this afternoon. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noy says the weekend is starting with some calm weather but will turn nastier. A warm weekend for December. Highs in the 50s today, mostly cloudy and isolated shower. Tomorrow we climb into the 60s. Record high to beat in Boston is 64. Showers arrive tomorrow afternoon. Steady rain tomorrow evening turns heavier tomorrow night into Monday morning. Localized flooding potential, embedded thunder possible, around an inch of rain expected. When we may end with some wet snowflakes mixed in as the temperatures drop sharply through the day. Big wind concerns too. Gusts pre-dawn Monday through the morning hours, 45 to 55 miles per hour, much of eastern mass, gusts to 65 miles per hour along the immediate coast possible, scattered outages and damage likely. It is 43 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. President Volodymyr Zelensky said last week, we wanted faster results from Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia. This is a fraught and critical time for Ukraine. We're joined now by William Taylor, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, now vice president at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Ambassador Taylor, thanks for being with us. Scott, thank you for having me. And Philip O'Brien, a professor of strategic studies at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Professor, thank you for being with us. Delighted to be here. President Zelensky pointed to what he called a new phase in the war. Is that how you see it? 
certain things have become apparent in this war, really apparent in the last seven or eight months. First is you're not going to break through the line relying on tanks and, and the sort of the old way of looking at war. Ukraine tried it. Russia has tried it. Neither side has been able to break the line and make big advances. Neither side has air superiority. And the way of going forward is really hard. So the reality is Ukraine is going to be very careful now. They have two Achilles heels in the war. One of them of their own is they have a much smaller population base. They can't get into an attritional war with Russia where they lose one soldier for every Russian soldier or even two Russian soldiers for each one of theirs. So they're going to have to preserve their soldiers' lives to keep the war going. So they're not going to take any risks. The other Achilles heel they have now is the one screaming from Washington of will they get any more aid from the United States. They knew there was a chance that after November of 2024 in the U.S. election, if Trump were reelected, that they might lose aid. They never thought they would lose it now. Ambassador Taylor, I gather you've been meeting with high-level Ukrainian officials who were in Washington, D.C. this week. Are they worried about U.S. support ending or being greatly diminished even before the 2024 elections might change that? Well, they are. I mean, they pay close attention to what goes on here, what people say, the likelihood of votes, uh, what issues are involved in their issue. They're very concerned about our continued support. Ambassador Taylor, is it just a fact of life, though, that the U.S. is now distracted also by a war in the Middle East? Of course, Scott, it is. And they understand that. President Zelensky recognizes that. But they also listen carefully to what the White House says, that they can handle two things that the United States is able to deal with two important issues. They understand the the urgency in the Middle East, but they feel the existential, literally existential. If they lose, they understand if they lose to the Russians, there will not be a Ukraine. Professor O'Brien, how would you answer the concerns of Americans who say, look, I feel sorry for Ukraine, but it's just not our business? It is so extraordinarily short-sighted for Americans to say this. We are really facing two futures, and it's a future that is intimately connected to American security. And by the way, Ukraine can win this war if aided properly. They've shown they have the military capability. They know how to beat the Russian army, but they have not been armed properly. But if Ukraine is armed properly to win the war, and then later sort of admitted into NATO as a full state, Europe is basically set for generations this concern of the United States since 1945 of a continent they weren't quite sure, first the Soviet Union, then Russian instability, where you know, the United States had to keep military force, get involved. But if Ukraine wins, Europe is settled. On the other hand, if Ukraine is deprived of weapons and forced to accept a really bad peace deal where a lot of the country gets amputated and handed over to Russia, basically you create chaos in Europe for security concerns, that Ukraine is looked to be abandoned. And by the way, all those countries in Central and Eastern Europe or the Nordics and the Baltics will see the United States happily agreed to hand over parts of a former Soviet territory to Russia through military force. Scott, if I can just say, there's another thing that reinforces the professor's point about the East Europeans uh, watching very closely. President Xi of China is watching very closely to see if the United States will stand with its allies and will defend its own interests and European interests. So this has broad implications. Professor O'Brien, how is the war going from Vladimir Putin's point of view? 
better than he expected now if the U.S. doesn't give aid. I mean, it seemed to be that it was quite clear that what Putin's goals in the medium term were, were to get through to November 2024 and hope that Donald Trump wins. Russians have built up a thick defensive line that's going to be very hard. So as long as the United States and other supporters of Ukraine don't give Ukraine weapons to attack, say, Crimea, the Russians are going to be in their defensive line and then try and make certain advances to take some of the area that they have illegally annexed and then hope to get to 2024 election and the U.S. and Trump wins and then, in a sense, present Ukraine with a, a fait accompli. What has happened, I think, is that Putin has been emboldened and very much emboldened by what he sees now in the United States. If Congress doesn't approve this aid now, that's the greatest victory Putin has had in this war to date. Nothing in this war that has happened on the battlefield could compare to the Russian success of Congress cutting off aid to Ukraine. Let me ask you both finally, is Ukraine an issue in the 2024 presidential elections? Because there are voices both on the left and right that say the United States just can't afford this level of support year after year after year. When Americans hear what we're providing, what the United States is providing to Ukraine is 5% of our defense budget, and they are inflicting grave damage on one of our two main adversaries. Let's call the Russians enemies. Um, our enemy is lost 50% of its ground forces because of the Ukrainians' strength from our support. 5% of our defense budget, we can handle this. So what the United States is doing is not giving Ukraine 5% of its budget. It is literally spending 90% of that amount of money in American factories and American production, employing Americans to make the stocks that have been sent to Ukraine. It's not giving Ukraine anything. It's going into the pockets of American workers. Philip O'Brien, professor of strategic studies at St. Andrews University in Scotland, and William Taylor, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, now vice president at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. There's new hope this week for people who suffer from sickle cell disease. The Food and Drug Administration approved the first genetic treatments for the brutal blood disorder on Friday. The announcement marks the first time that a medical treatment that uses gene editing has become available in the U.S. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us. Rob, thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. And, of course, sickle cell is a genetic disorder, uh, causes red blood cells to become deformed, sickle-shaped. What are the effects of it? Yeah, it's a terrible disease. These misshapen, sickle-shaped cells can't nourish the body with oxygen like they're supposed to, and the misshapen cells cause unpredictable attacks of excruciating pain and serious health problems that usually cut patients' lives short. The only cure is a bone marrow transplant, and most patients just can't find a suitable donor for that. How do these genetic treatments work? So doctors remove cells from patients' bodies, genetically modify those cells in the lab, and then infuse billions of the modified cells back into patients where the modified cells produce a healthy form of a protein sickle cell patients need called hemoglobin. That creates normal red blood cells and alleviates the symptoms. 
one of the new treatments uses a more conventional approach, a modified version of a virus to ferry a gene into patient cells. The other uses the gene editing technique known as CRISPR to edit a gene in the cells. Scott, you might remember Victoria Gray of Forest, Mississippi. She was the first sickle cell patient to get the gene editing treatment in 2019. NPR broke that story and had exclusive access to Chronicler experience. I talked with her about yesterday's approval. I've had a new beginning. I no longer have to go to the hospital um, because I'm in severe pain. I'm no longer tired um, with lack of energy. And most of all, I no longer have to fear dying and leaving my kids behind without a mother. My life is limitless now. It is a real transformation. And Scott, that's been the experience of most of the patients who've undergone both treatments so far. It's so wonderful to hear her say that. Are there negative impacts uh, for many of these treatments? Well, you know, there are still lots of questions. You know, one of the questions is, will these treatments actually translate into a longer lifespan for patients? Could there be any long-term side effects that just haven't shown up yet? In fact, there is already some concern that the approach that uses the virus may increase the risk for blood cancer. And another big question is, will patients be able to get these new treatments? They're expensive. One will cost $2.2 million per patient, the other $3.1 million, and they're very complicated. And difficult to go through. So it will be hard to get for many patients, especially less affluent patients in this country and the millions of patients in Africa and Asia where sickle cell is most common. All of this being noted, Rob, how significant a moment is this for gene editing? It's a big deal. You know, it's pretty remarkable how quickly gene editing went from being an experimental technique to something that is actually helping people. I talked about this with Jennifer Doudna from the University of California, Berkeley. She shared a Nobel Prize for helping discover CRISPR. It's only the beginning. It's an amazing time. Gene editing is already being tested for a long list of diseases ranging from relatively rare genetic conditions like muscular dystrophy to more common health problems like cancer and heart disease. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein, thanks so much. You bet, Scott. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, the Boston angle of the history and the influence of college radio. Music fans are able to curate shows. And along the way, right, they're making new discoveries. They're really, truly excited about something and they want other people to hear it. That's ahead on Weekend Edition. It's 43 degrees in Boston, clouds around today, and highs in the low 50s. Some rain tomorrow and a chance of thunderstorms. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And the Boston Foundation, knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities. The Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston.
Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The U.S. is facing criticism from supporters of a U.N. resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The U.S. blocked the resolution, saying it did not condemn Hamas for its attacks on Israel and ignored U.S. efforts to get aid into Gaza and to free hostages. The Texas Supreme Court has put a temporary hold on a judge's approval this week for a woman with severe pregnancy complications to obtain an abortion. The state Supreme Court issued an order last night saying its decision is not based on the merits of the case, but rather to review the lower court's decision. And Taylor Swift has reached another milestone. The concert trade publication Polestar says Swift's Eras Tour has earned more than $1 billion, with some 4.3 million tickets sold across 60 tour dates. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. For weeks, the world's attention has been on Gaza, Israel's war with Hamas, and the humanitarian crisis for Palestinians caught in the fighting. Many Palestinians say tensions are also threatening to boil over in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Palestinians and some Israelis say that army raids, violence by Israeli settlers, and growing economic crisis could lead to another intifada or uprising, NPR's Brian Mann reports. On a rugged, windswept hill near the West Bank city of Jericho, a Bedouin shepherd named Jamal Mlahayat points past his goat pens to the horizon. The settlers come from the hills around the Jericho Valley, Mlahayat says. They attack our homes in the middle of the night. This is an area Israelis and Palestinians have disputed for decades. It's controlled by the Israeli military. Israel has built and expanded settlements here, and recent right-wing governments have backed them. Nahat says since the war with Hamas began in Gaza after October 7th, settler violence grew worse. We are peaceful people. I lived with Jews for over 40 years, Mahayat says. But now I realize the Israeli government has empowered these settlers, and they do not want peace. The U.S. State Department recently said it will start banning Israeli extremists in the West Bank from getting U.S. visas. Israel defended the settlers, saying 99% are law-abiding and peaceful. But clashes between settlers and Palestinians aren't the only flashpoints here. In recent weeks, Israel has stopped Palestinians from working inside Israel, crippling the West Bank's economy. And Israel's army has carved up Palestinian territory with a confusing maze of roadblocks apparent to anyone passing through. I'm at a checkpoint on the outskirts of Jericho, and we have been here for over two hours. It's just really confusing. It's hard to know who's supposed to go or when. That kind of daily disruption is frustrating, Palestinians say, and humiliating in a territory they say is supposed to be theirs. Mohammed Issa is 27 years old, a barber in the Kalendia refugee camp near Jerusalem and Ramallah. 
On the door of his shop is a photograph of a cousin he says was killed, martyred, Isa says, by Israeli soldiers. He says Israeli soldiers come to the densely populated district many nights, heavily armed, provoking confrontations with Palestinians. They come here to intimidate us and to kill, he says. Israeli officials say raids, arrests, and other military operations are necessary to prevent further violence against Israelis like the October 7 attack. After Palestinian militants from the West Bank killed three Israelis last month at a bus stop in Jerusalem, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu promised a tough response. Everyone who hurts us will either be in the grave or in prison, Netanyahu said, referring to militants in Gaza and the West Bank. But Israeli raids here often take the lives of civilians. The United Nations says since October 7th, 256 Palestinians, including 67 teens and younger children, have been killed in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. It is dangerous, actually. Samar Barghouti is an economist in Ramallah who heads an organization of Palestinian farmers. He says Israel's crackdown in the West Bank, combined with Palestinian anger over the war in Gaza, is pushing people toward a third intifada, or uprising. Yes, the anger will be converted to political activities and even military activities. Roy Yellen agrees. He was with the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem. He fears tough Israeli government policies after October 7th and tolerance of settler violence will lead to another full-scale crisis. The West Bank right now is like a pressure cooker that is about to explode. Not enough is, is done in order to prevent that slide into another front of violence also in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Yellen and others say the prospect of more violence and a wider humanitarian disaster for Palestinians in the West Bank is grim in itself. They also say Israel could wind up facing a full-scale conflict here while also battling Hamas in Gaza. Brian Mann, NPR News, Ramallah. As of November, nearly 3 million federal student loan borrowers had monthly payments of $0, according to the U.S. Department of Education. That's in part because of a new repayment plan known as SAVE. NPR's Corey Turner joins us. Corey, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. SAVE, of course, stands for Saving on a Valuable Education. How are these $0 payments possible? So bear with me here for a second. It is fundamentally a repayment plan that bases a borrower's monthly payment on their income. So the less they make, the less they have to pay each month. Now, this isn't a new idea, but what is new is SAVE is a lot more generous than anything that's come before. And that's true in a few different ways. So, for example, monthly loan payments are not based on all of a borrower's income, just on what is considered extra or uh, discretionary. And one thing that SAVE does is it increases how much income is considered off-limits. Shorthand, that means a lot more borrowers will now qualify for essentially a $0 monthly payment because the federal government says you don't have any discretionary income. Like we said in the intro, of the 5.5 million borrowers who are now enrolled in SAVE, more than half, almost 3 million of them, have one of these $0 monthly payments. I should also say, Scott, SAVE stands out because whatever interest is not covered by your monthly payment, especially if it's $0, that interest now gets wiped away. Well, l- l- let me ask for your counsel on something, though. One of our producers here has student loans, enrolled in SAVE, and discovered that her monthly payment just came down by about $20. Let me put you <laughs> on the spot. Why? 
Ah, uh, well, let me get my crystal ball here. No, actually, there there are two potential explanations here, Scott. First, as part of this huge transition of tens of millions of borrowers back to repayment, I will say loan servicers and the education department have made a lot of mistakes when it comes to calculating borrowers' monthly payments under save. So sadly, that wouldn't surprise me if that's the explanation. But there's another explanation. And that is everyone enrolling in SAVE needs to understand that probably the biggest change that's really going to save borrowers money hasn't even happened yet. So this is pretty nerdy. Bear with me here. Yeah. That monthly payment math that we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. I said SAVE messes with it in two ways. So as we said, it exempts more of borrowers' income from being considered discretionary. But then... Right now, borrowers' payments are 10% of that discretionary income, of whatever's left, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in July next year, 2024, for undergraduate borrowers, that's going to drop. Instead of 10% of your discretionary income, it's going to go down to 5%, which might sound a little weird and tedious, but what it means for borrowers is basically it's going to cut their monthly payments in half. So for folks like your producer thinking, oh, my payments are not as low as I thought it would be, just wait. Hmm. This sounds generous, but how much is it going to cost? So we know from the Penn Wharton budget model that um, the price tag could be as much as $475 billion across 10 years, which is a lot of money. And it's one reason why many Republicans are, I don't think it's overstating it to say, furious about the SAVE plan. Uh, Congresswoman Virginia Fox, who is the Republican chair of the House Education Committee. <laughs> Scott, she hates SAVE with the heat of a thousand suns. I, honestly, like on the House floor earlier this week, she said SAVE is, quote, President Biden's game of ruling by executive decree, pinning the tab on the taxpayer. She called it reckless, inflationary, and illegal. In fact, House Republicans just tried to overturn the SAVE plan. But a similar effort has already failed in the Senate, and President Biden has made clear, even if it does get to his desk, he'll veto it. And here's Corey Turner. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Scott. And Corey, remind us, what's the address where listeners can, can read all of NPR's student loan coverage? It's super easy, npr.org slash student loans. A new documentary, A Disturbance in the Force, celebrates a notorious bit of TV history. In 1978, Lucasfilm made a huge mistake they prefer we all forget. The Star Wars Holiday Special. Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, how did I miss that? Harrison Ford, Stormtroopers, and a variety show, now a cult classic, NPR Scott Detrow, who believes in the Force, honors <laughs> the special later today on All Things Considered. You can listen on the NPR app or tune in to your local station on the radio. And now it's time for sports. Shohei, Shohei, where wilt thou sign? And the NBA crowns a new kind of champion tonight. ESPN's Michelle Steele joins us. Michelle, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. We're on the verge of the biggest free agent signing in baseball history. Shohei Otani, the reigning AL MVP, reportedly close to deciding which team's billions he'll accept. What do you hear? 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, Tawny. Uh, Scott, it reached a fever pitch this week. I would say that it's still at a fever pitch. We're just coming off baseball's winter meetings. And at one point Friday, 4,000 people were tracking a private jet flying from Anaheim, where he played, of course, for the last six seasons, to Toronto. In fact, a respected insider said he was on that flight. Blue Jays fans were going nuts. As it turns out, it was just a guy from Shark Tank. Otani never left Southern California. There was all the speculation he was going to announce yesterday. People were excited. They were ready for it. Of course, the entire baseball world has been waiting with bated breath. The Dodgers, the Blue Jays, the Giants, Angels, and Scott, the Cubs, have all been said to be involved in the bidding. But Otani's camp has been very secretive about which teams they're visiting and interested in. Is there some kind of sign? I'm told there is in the name of Shohei Otani's dog, which I hope is named Ernie Banks. <laughs> yeah, I'm working to confirm that, Scott. Uh, this is the thing. When these negotiations, these talks, these visits are so cloak and dagger, people have been glomming on to any sign that their team might be in the mix here. And my colleague Pablo Torre at ESPN had floated a rumor that he heard the dog's name, Otani's dog's name, is directly related to one of the teams he's considering. And that's why Otani's people are not telling reporters what the dog's name is. You know, he had that dog with him when he accepted the AL MVP award. Can you believe it? Uh, I can tell you the dog is not named Oakland Coliseum. Ha! That much we know. All right. Um, <laughs> NBA's first in-season tournament wraps up tonight. Uh, final between the L.A. Lakers and Indiana Pacers. Has this mid-season tournament accomplished much of anything? Yeah, you know what? I think Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, should send a thank you card and perhaps a nice little gift basket to LeBron James because LeBron James... The biggest star in the league has treated this thing seriously. He is playing like he's in his 20s, not almost 39 years old. Dropped 30 points last night against the Pelicans to get into the final tonight. He is bought in. Lakers are bought in. So the NBA is bought in. And you know what? It's brought some excitement to a new event that fans might be slow to embrace otherwise. So LeBron is treating this respectfully and so other players are picking up what the tone that he's setting army navy game today in foxborough massachusetts army is a three-point favorite but michelle is it fair that they get to use tanks i mean what do we expect (laughs) yes it is fair uh navy will be using f-18s and submarines so leveling the playing field a little bit no but seriously uh we can expect one of the most electric atmospheres in college sports rows of navy midshipmen rows of west point cadets they're going to be filling the stands this afternoon for one of what i think is one of the best traditions in college football it's the 124th army navy game this year it's in fox bro scott i think given how the patriot season has gone it might be one of the better games played in fox bro this year <laughs> navy <laughs> navy leads the series 62 to 54. my dad's from maryland so on that note Go Navy, beat Army. Oh, all right. Michelle Steele of ESPN, thanks so much for being <laughs> with us, and uh, and we will talk to you soon. I, what if Shohei Otani's dog is named Waveland Avenue? 
one can hope. Ooh. Yeah. Now that's intrigue. That'll be you're listening to uh, you're listening to weekend edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Chances are you would not be hearing me right now if it weren't for college radio. That's because my life changed and my career began when I joined my college station. Catherine Rye Jewell is also a college radio alum. I remember getting on the airwaves for the first time and just looking around thinking, they're actually letting me do this. These days, Jewell is a history professor at Fitchburg State University. Her new book is Live from the Underground, A History of College Radio. The book explores how mostly non-commercial, student-run stations around the U.S. became a taste-making phenomenon that helped redefine the music industry. Music fans are able to curate shows, and along the way, right, they're making new discoveries. They're really, truly excited about something, and they want other people to hear it. That energy and the attention of record companies helped bring artists, including R.E.M., Nirvana, and De La Soul, to the mainstream. College radio introduced listeners to entire new genres. And a lot of that happened on Boston-area airwaves. With so many schools packed into a relatively small geographic area, in the 1970s, Boston became an unofficial capital of the college radio universe. MIT's station, then known as WTBS, launched what's believed to be the first punk rock show on U.S. radio. It was called The Demimonde. Jewel says that had a ripple effect. Boston was a really important scene because they maintained strong links to the New York punk scene. A lot of the punk acts like the Ramones came to Boston to play some of their first shows. They were getting interviews on Boston College radio stations. Tonight, of course, over there at the Rat in Kenmore Square, Third Rail is playing along with the Electric Chairs, Electric Chairs featuring Wayne County, who... Uh, kindly paid us a visit down here at the studios of WTBS. There's this nice symbiosis between people who are on the radio stations who are going every night to the clubs, going to the local record stores. So you have venues, you have record stores, you have radio stations. Eventually you'll have labels that are all kind of working together to build buzz around these spans. And Jewel says earlier in the 1970s, the MIT station was breaking new ground, reaching out to Boston's black community, thanks to the school's Black Student Union. They hosted one of my favorite events in all of college radio history, where they would have a party at the station at MIT, and they would encourage listeners to turn on the radio and have house parties or street parties. And there's this wonderful article about driving down streets of Boston and being able to hear the parties all across the the neighborhood. And it was organized by a group of DJs who were affiliated with the Black Student Union. They had a show called The Ghetto. And, you know, they were all very, very active in in promoting this. For the most of night, jazz, rhythm and blues. 
Check out the ghetto 88.1 FM Sunday through Thursday. 88.1 FM Sunday through Thursday after midnight. Boston still has lots of college radio hotspots, including stations at Emerson, Harvard, Tufts, and Boston College. WZBC and Boston College had the show No Commercial Potential, which played anything that would never have a chance of making it on commercial airwaves. And I think that show's name is so perfect for encapsulating that image of college radio, of its, you know, sort of being really out there on the fringes. Jewel says, although innovative commercial music radio is mostly a thing of the past, college radio remains important in ways that go beyond music. It's a place where ordinary Americans can fight over what their voice is going to sound like. There's a sort of democratic potential to it. It's done by amateurs. It's done by people who are learning. It's done by people who don't have a financial stake in what they're putting out on the airwaves. Catherine Rye Jewell is a history professor at Fitchburg State and the author of Live from the Underground, A History of College Radio. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker, Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial institutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and the Harvard Art Museums. With over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries, free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday, harvardartmuseums.org. This afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins face the Arizona Coyotes. It is 43 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the low 50s. Tomorrow, windy, highs in the low 60s, some rain mainly late in the day and at night. Monday, rain, a chance of thunderstorms and highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Benjamin Dreyer has reached an inflection point in his career. The best-selling author of Dreyer's English, which is the inspiration behind the card game Stet, which is copy editor talk for Let It Stand, is stepping down from his position as vice president, executive managing editor, and copy chief of Random House. He will onboard into a new phase in which he can curate ideas through robust concepting. I think he will, in fact, be very, very aggravated by this very introduction. Benjamin Dreyer joins us now from New York. Semicolon, which he won't like at all. Thanks so much for being with us, Benjamin. Thank you for having me, Scott. What about that intro? Um, well, I, I can say that you delivered it with a lot of riz, so I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> riz is the new word of the year, I gather. Yeah. Um, you have worked with some great writers, Elizabeth Stroud, Eel Doctorow, Frank Rich, 
uh, even uh, edited a Shirley Jackson collection that was published posthumously. Is that a tricky relationship? What's that like? The posthumous one or the living ones? <laughs> well, I, I, I lumped them all together. I, I realize you have to be discreet. Well, it kind of goes in, into sort of two categories. Yeah, I mean, you have your relationship with your living authors, and if it works out right, that relationship is genial. It's a conversation. It's not somebody issuing orders to somebody else and somebody cringing when you're issuing the orders. And I, I've had lovely relationships with the authors that I've had the pleasure of, uh, of working with. Uh, working on a manuscript by Shirley Jackson, which was just for me a sort of an odd unlikely dream come true. She'd been my favorite writer for decades, and suddenly I find myself working on this collection of, indeed, material that she had left behind. And with any writer, really, but particularly one who can't talk back, you have to figure out how to approach the text in an extremely respectful fashion, trying to make a writer's manuscript into the best possible book you can get out of it. How do you, how do you tell people what a copy editor does? There are a lot of people that might think it's just to, you know, to make certain they're not misspellings and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, copy editors do certainly attend to spelling. That's a very important function of the job and to punctuation. But there are so many other things that you do, and the longer you do it, the more you sort of accumulate this massive bag of tricks that you apply to every manuscript, including, for instance, pointing out to an author that oh, you know, you've used the word irrevocably five times in the last 20 pages, so let's maybe switch that up a little bit. And if you're working on a novel, you're going to be keeping very close track of the chronology to make sure that all the days run in the proper order and that people are aging at the same rate as the other. You're there to do what an author might have done had an author not already looked at their manuscript 175 times. You've issued a challenge in your book for people to go a week without writing or uttering certain words. Very, rather, really, quite, in fact. Yes. In fact, isn't this quite a very, really, rather cunning <laughs> challenge? It, it is. And the thing is, they are, of course, the words that we use to pad out the things that we say. The, you know, very often, even though you're doing it lightning fast, sometimes you just stretch a sentence out by a word when you're trying to think of what it is that you're trying to say. But you are always, as a copy editor, looking for unnecessary fat that isn't really helpful and suggesting, urging the author to consider disposing uh, of that fat. To say that somebody is is very smart, almost sounds like pleading. If you want to say that somebody's very smart, why not reach for a, a jazzier adjective like brilliant? What concerns do you have about um, American literature, the book industry, the entire use of words when we're coming into an age of AI, for example? You know, occasionally people will come to me to shore up their perception that language and writing are deteriorating. And I think that the level of writing these days is, is just wonderfully, perilously high. I just see so many great books and articles from so many gifted writers. I, I, find, it, I find it encouraging. As to the looming threat of AI, I think that writers will always write and good writers will always write. And I think that Computers and artificial intelligence can imitate, but can't create. Yeah, I mean, write, writers bring humanity. 
What one insight about writing do you think you've you've learned and applied over the years that we ought to keep as we go about writing in our everydays? Find your voice. Find a way to express yourself that sounds like you. And if you can figure out what that sounds like, you are going to take a lot of the tension and the anxiety out of the job of writing. Benjamin Dreyer, going on to other things after 30 years at Random House. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Scott. This month, we're highlighting some of our favorite stories from 2023, including this interview about a song with a beautiful history behind it. I'm Rose Betts. I'm a singer-songwriter. My mother says I have Irish eyes, Irish I'm from eyes, London, Irish England eyes. area originally, but I live in I L.A. at the moment. Eyes, they go ever so blue on the stormy skies, but they're never so blue as when I let them cry. That first line of that song I actually started writing about seven years ago. I have the same eyes as my mother, and I think she has the same eyes as my grandmother. So that's kind of where the line came from. I wouldn't say I was Irish, I would say I was English because that's where I grew up. But uh, my mother's family are all very, very Irish and I grew up completely around Irish culture and around my grandparents and, yeah, I think lately I've felt very connected to my Irish culture. Irish eyes, Irish eyes, my mother says... I never got beyond that first opening line because I didn't quite know where the song wanted to go and I, a few months ago I was like, oh, I remember that, I'm going to go back to that song and suddenly... My father says I have English hair, English The next line came of, like, my father says I have English hair. Brown like the bark of an oak somewhere, like the bed of a lake where the hemlock grows, like the thorn in the stem of an English rose. And I was like, oh, that's what the song's about. It's almost like the song told me what it was about. It's like, oh, it's about all the things that we inherit and the things that we take from our ancestors. It really interests me, what everyone gets. Sometimes the way that I sit is like a lot like my mum, and I do this thing with my foot that's just like my mum. And my Irish grandmother, we really, really deeply connected. And she died when I was 16, and it was the first time that I'd experienced death, and it was just horrendous. And at the same time, it made me a songwriter. But there are so many things. Apparently, I sit at the piano just the same way that she does. And I just thought, that's so interesting to think of us as this big puzzle that's made of all these different things that have got us here and how grateful I am for those things. I'm a map of and the ones before, one foot in sea and one on shore. When I started working in music, inevitably people would compare my voice to Irish music or they would say I had had a Celtic vibe. And I felt very cautious about using that side of my life or my heritage as a kind of gimmick. Because I, actually, I take it quite seriously, the, the culture and, and a lot of the pain and, and the, the darkness that goes along with being Irish and the history, especially in connection with English and being someone who has split heritage. I think lately I've felt able as a songwriter to handle the wonderful light side of Irish culture and Irish music with the darkness. My sister says I'm a restless soul, restless soul, restless soul. Easy to catch, but I'm hard to hold. Like a song on the wind that you caught one day. I get on my skin, then I step away. Usually I play piano in all my songs, but I kind of was like, oh, this is not a piano song. It weights things down. I thought, oh, this needs lightness. It needs guitar and mandolin or banjo and and I've got my twin sister who plays Irish flute to play an Irish flute lilting melody. It's like everything I felt needed to be kind of joyous. 
especially when it comes to like some of the lines, it really helps sometimes when you smile and sing. I feel like you can really hear that sometimes. I'm in my traveling feet phase. Slippers for princesses don't fit me, but I dance to my own drum bright and bold, and my traveling feet always get me home. Living far away from family, I've never felt particularly homesick, but it's interesting that now I'm feeling like I want to write songs with a kind of Celtic feel. And it's very, I do get nostalgic about certain things. My Irish grandparents have both passed away and all that's left are stories, all that's left are the memories. And Ireland is a country of stories. That's how they survived everything. And to be in a room with someone Irish telling you a story is just the perfect thing ever. They can tell a story like none else. I mean, it's incredible. Even when my mum starts, she can describe going to the shops in a way that makes you just utterly enraptured. And I, I, I'm intrigued to see what more comes from Ireland. The more stories that come out of that place, the better, because they have so much power and depth to them. That singer-songwriter, Rose Betts, sharing the story of her song, Irish Eyes. More than 5,000 migrant children have enrolled in Colorado classrooms since the summer, and that has put a real strain on some schools. Colorado Public Radio's Jenny Brundine visited one to see the changes that it's making to try to welcome and teach the new arrivals. That's math intervention happening there. And then behind him is reading intervention. So I'm talking about creative use of spaces. Principal Nadia Madan-Moro points to what used to be just a library. We're working on trying to get something to break up the sound because it's noisy in there right now. Every bit of space in Placebridge Academy is full right now. The school is designed to serve immigrants and refugees, but even this school wasn't quite prepared for the influx. Frankly, in schools, we were really caught off guard. Over 100 more students than it expected showed up this fall. Literacy teacher Carmen Curi says the teachers who spoke Spanish could start teaching students how the U.S. school system works. But when a class of 30 or more kids went to art or P.E. and teachers didn't speak Spanish... Things were going crazy. Some teachers were overwhelmed because they didn't know how to communicate and they didn't understand the background of the students. Two teachers quit. It was too much. School leaders quickly realized they'd not only need more teachers, but would have to reconfigure classes because, Madan Moro says, something was different about many of the new students. Our students that are newly arrived from Venezuela, many of them have had very long journeys to get here, about two years to get here. So we have some students that have never been in school. We have some students that haven't been in school for several years. Ocho, nueve, diez. School leaders hired five more teachers, most from Spanish-speaking countries. Third-grade teacher Renee Norris Fernandez goes over double-digit addition with students in Spanish. Research shows the more kids can get up to speed academically in their first language, the more quickly they'll learn English. But students in this bilingual class have extra challenges. A student works on the sounds ba, baby, bo, boo. He's nine years old. 
Entonces no ha tenido escolaridad antes y no sabe leer. The classroom aide says the boy is new to the country, from Venezuela, and has never been to school before, doesn't know how to read. Here's Norris Fernandez. He says many children don't know letters or sounds of letters. Many move from city to city in other countries, their parents working long hours. They often couldn't go to school. But today, every kid is busy, working at tables, helping each other, and learning. You're welcome, sweets. One hat, one pair of gloves, guys. In the hallway, a staff member distributes donated hats and gloves to students. The basic needs of families are tremendous. Some kids live in shelters. The clinic at the school has a wait list for students needing mental health services. In essays, some students wrote about dead bodies or dangerous animals they saw on their journey to Colorado. 13-year-old Ashley, with long curly brown hair, arrived from Venezuela in September. She says one time in Mexico, the bus made a detour and they were handed over to people who told them to pay or be detained or kidnapped. She thanks God for protecting her family from kidnappers. At school, Ashley's made friends and says the teachers are always there for students. She doesn't always understand class, but tries to catch a bit here and there and get the gist of the topic. Ashley has big goals. She wants to be a pediatrician. Her teacher, Janet Taggart, knows the level of English her students will need, even to succeed in high school. I feel such a strong need to help them move and push them to get as much as they can in the one year that they have newcomer support. You see, students like Ashley are in the newcomer program. That gives them extra supports for one year. Newcomers are students who've had interrupted schooling and also limited skills in both English and their native language. You will have your headphones on. They will be talking in English, but the words will be in Swahili or in French or in Spanish. The kids watch a video in English. But when we talk about the harvest feast and what happens in... Then listen again, reading subtitles in their native language. Every week, dozens more newcomers are arriving in classrooms across Metro Denver. It's unclear how many students will stay at the school. Some have already left after their families found more permanent housing farther away. But for those here now, Good morning, they're happy, eager, and grateful to be in a safe place as they learn new things like the lunch menu. All right, the lunch menu is broccoli and cheese potatoes, PB and J if you don't have nut allergy. For NPR News, I'm Jenny Brendine in Denver. And this is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high quality journalism. 
Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com and Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com and the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight. I'm Nagin Farsad, in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Dakota Johnson what it was like growing up with famous parents. Well, I would tell you different things that I tell my therapist. Okay. <laughs> this week, we'll ask our guest Fred Schneider of the B-52s to spill his innermost secrets. That and more on the News Quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.